Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On this Roy Green Show podcast, Global News Chief Parliamentary Correspondent David Aiken on the Premier's Conference and nuclear energy proposal from Saskatchewan, Ontario and New Brunswick. Brian Peckford, the former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, expresses his views on Andrew Scheer continuing to lead the Conservative Party of Canada. Calvin Lawrence is a multi-decade Canadian police officer who was subjected to ongoing racism. He's the author of Black Cop. And on the issue of chronic pain patients, U.S. patient advocate Richard Lawhorn and writer Mark Rose on patients cancelling surgeries because hospitals won't commit to post-surgical pain medication and are animals forced to live in pain because opioid-based pain medication is now in short supply. David Aiken is chief political correspondent for Global News. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. David, thank you for the time. And let me start with this. What, what's your take on the Premier's conference that Premier Mo is going to chair? Uh, well, there's about as many things as they, uh, I, I suppose, disagree on as they agree on. And, it, and Mo is, even though this meeting is going to be held just down the road from you in Toronto, uh, Mo is the current chair of what's called the Council of the Federation. That's all the territorial leaders and premiers. So it's Mo's job to try and make sure that the premiers really don't get bogged down on things they disagree and focus on some things they agree on. A couple of the disagreeing themes. Here's an easy one. Bill 21, that's, of course, in Quebec, prevents uh, provincial employees, teachers, uh, police officers from wearing any religious symbol. Brian Pallister, the Manitoba premier, he's already come to Ottawa to tell Justin Trudeau, hey, you've got to do something about this in Quebec. It's not right. Legault has told everybody to butt out, so there's that. I don't know if that's going to come up, but uh, we'll see. Uh, then, of course, there's the, this, you know, this is the issue we know, is the issue of energy corridors. We've got Legault and John Horgan from B.C. quite resistant to any new energy corridors. Mo, Jason Kenney from Alberta, Blaine Higgs from New Brunswick, they're quite insistent on some new energy corridors. Then there's equalization that Saskatchewan and Alberta, we know, are upset that you know, Quebec seems to be getting a free ride here. They want the formula changed, but they're the only premiers who want to talk about changing the formula. There's not many other premiers. But there are some things to agree on, and there's a separate but similar program to equalization called fiscal stabilization. And that's a pot of money the feds have to help out provinces that are suffering an economic shock, like, say, the drop in the price of oil out west. So, so I, my guess is we're going to see Mo and the premiers focus on fiscal stabilization, and then uh, you notice I haven't mentioned our guy, Doug Ford. Um, he is setting himself up to be, I think, the great unifier. He doesn't want to see these premiers squabbling among themselves. He wants to be a, a unity guy. And for him, he, it's pretty obvious, what can the premiers all agree on? They can all agree that Ottawa is not giving any province enough money for health care. So I'm fully expecting to see Ford to rally the troops at the end of the day on, uh, hey, Trudeau, you've got to pony up on the health care file. So it's going to be, I think it's going to be an interesting meeting. We've got a, a group of people who have some dissimilar, uh, you know, partisan views, uh, but uh, know that it's the same voter at the end of the day. They all represent federal or provincial. Yeah, and I found it interesting yesterday when I was speaking with uh, Premier Mo on this suggestion, or at least they're, ha- they're having the newser today, that Ontario, Saskatchewan, and New Brunswick have this idea, this plan for modular nuclear reactors to create clean energy. So there you go, Justin Trudeau, and your carbon tax. Yeah, so it's an interesting idea, and it's one that's been kicked around by a federal-provincial task force now for about a year. And it's one in which all three of those provinces have been participating. Uh, Out in New Brunswick, they've got a research program set up uh, to try to perfect the technology here. The technology is at at least 10 years away from being rolled out on a commercial scale. And uh, here's where, and by the way, just uh, you know, newsflash here, actually, right, because of the weather right now, that news conference is delayed because Higgs from New Brunswick, uh, we're, not, we're not sure if he's, he's definitely not going to get into Pearson on time today. We're not sure if he's going to get into Pearson at all. So we might hear this actually confirmed uh, tomorrow. But just on the, the, the technology and the carbon tax, and you should definitely bring this up with Glenn Hodgson when you get him on. So who's going to pay for, to develop this, these modular nuclear technologies? 
Well, in, in conceivably, the taxpayers of Canada, the taxpayers of Saskatchewan, the taxpayers of Ontario, and the taxpayers of New Brunswick. So if that is going to be revenue neutral, the likely billions of dollars it's going to take to develop this technology, what's going to happen if we want revenue neutrality? There's no sources of revenue because presumably nobody wants to raise any taxes. So I guess we're going to run deficits. Probably not going to do that. So something, something's going to happen. It's not free developing this stuff. And in the report put together by the Federal Provincial Tax for- Force on this nuclear technology, there's a couple of charts that show all of a sudden this commercial, this new technology becomes viable with natural gas and hydro if you start putting a carbon tax on things like natural gas. And that's the incentive then for purchases of energy to say, right, we've got to get rid of natural gas, and now this, this uh, nuclear stuff looks great. And in that case, again, we want to be revenue neutral. This is what Ecofiscal is talking about, is the feds are collecting this carbon tax, and they're giving it back to Saskatchewan or wherever, and Saskatchewan is now free to give it back to consumers, or they can take this extra cash they now have to invest in nuclear technology. And that's how the carbon tax, as Glenn will explain to you, is, is, is a, it's more visible. We all know about it. And it produces less distortions because it's incenting private companies to develop this technology rather than you, me, and taxpayers everywhere to start forking over billions. U.S. folks in northwestern Ontario, have they felt about Ontario's nuclear plan over the years? They hate it. They go, why are we kicking in with our taxes to fund Darlington when they get all the clean hydro in the world they want? Um, so, you know, you've got to be sensitive of who's going to be paying for what kind of energy. The carbon tax, by raising the cost of coal or, 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 or whatever, makes this new nuclear technology, companies are incented to more rapidly get it out to market. It's got great potential. It's, I mean, I've, I've, done, I've been spending the morning doing the homework on this, great potential, but it is about 10 years down the road. You know what I'm hearing from, uh, from listeners, as soon as they hear about the carbon tax and increasing any kind of tax, they go back to shows that we've done most recently, and this is the visceral response. We've done shows on the issue of how much money people have, disposable income people have left, and it goes back to the Ipsos poll, which showed that 46% of people in this country are within $200 of not being able to pay their bills. And so there's a pushback immediately on taxation and a mistrust of all politicians handling our money appropriately. That, I think, is going to be the, one of the greatest challenges for any government to be able to overcome, gain the trust, well, gain the trust of the yeah, people. Trust is, absolutely, trust is an issue. So, And again, this is something that uh, the Ecofiscal Commission addressed in their report, is that they said, okay... Um, we, we, their, their recommendation is, is a carbon price, and a carbon price that goes to four times where it's going to be in 2020 by 2030. So, I mean, a vastly increased carbon price, and presumably carbon tax, is the, believe it or not, cheapest way to hit the targets. The targets, that's important to point out, that everybody, including the federal conservatives, agree we have to hit by 2030 to reduce emissions. But the Ecofiscal Commission, they said, okay, we, we get it that there are some politicians and some voters in some jurisdictions, carbon tax, no way, no how. So, can we st- so what the Ecofiscal Commission did was said, can we still hit those climate change targets that we all agree we have to hit by 2030, and can we do it with regulation and subsidies? And their answer is yes, it can be done. It, yeah, the, the, the second best way is is regulations across in all industries, every single industry, uh, along with subsidies to spur technology development. But again, that probably comes with a cost. And the cost is your income taxes are like, again, if we want to be revenue neutral, your income taxes are likely going to rise between anywhere from one to, to uh, two and a half percent. That's corporate and personal. Um, and so you're paying for it. If you're, if you're worried about your disposable income one way or the other, carbon tax or income tax, and you can't avoid an income tax. You can avoid a carbon tax by using less of whatever you're doing, and you get a rebate if we have a carbon tax. You don't get any rebate for paying income taxes. The worst system that the fiscal Ecofiscal Commission folks trotted out is kind of what the Ford government is, is aiming at, which is regulations only for the heaviest emitters, the big industry. That would be very costly because they would need huge subsidies to rapidly convert uh, their industrial processes to to really I mean they'd be they'd be bearing the load to get rid of these greenhouse gas emissions, and that means again if we want to be revenue neutral, that means we're looking at income taxes rising around you know as much as six percent. So the point of the Ecofiscal Commission is saying there's cost to everybody's system, a regulatory system that say a Ford or Kenny prefer, a carbon tax system that Trudeau likes. 
But Trudeau would refuse, and I asked him this in the election campaign. I said, where does the carbon tax have to go beyond 20, 20, uh, 2022 when it's only going to max in his plan at 50 bucks a ton? And he wouldn't say. We know, the economists say, it's got to go to 200 bucks a ton. But on the same side of the equation, the small-c conservative-minded politicians, they've got to be up front, too, when they, when they put out a program like, let's say, let's do all nuclear reactors. Great. Who's paying for that, and how does that get paid for? Because you've either got to cut, you've got to run deficits, or you've got to raise tax revenue somehow. So I think all politicians, you're right, Roy, trust is key if we're mm-hmm. going to solve this problem. But there's broad agreement we've got a problem we want to solve, but we need some honesty from our politicians about what are the costs, what are the benefits, and who's going to bear them, low-income, medium-income, just this industry, just that industry. And I, you know, again, I just haven't seen the honesty from all our politicians, no matter the plan they're pushing. And I think that's something we're going to see once we hear the throne speech this week in Ottawa. For sure, the environment and climate change is going to be front and center. And I think it's a reasonable thing to ask the federal government, okay, let's, let's see the plans right through to 2030, and then we can start talking and having an honest discussion about what the costs are. Yeah. Trust is a huge issue, David, and uh, it, it's not there the way it needs to be. And who's to blame for that? It's the political uh, realities. It's provincial and federal governments. They've lost the trust of so many people. But I have to take a break, my friend. I thank you so much for the time. Always great to talk to you. No problem. Good to chat, Roy. Cheers. (laughs) Thanks. David uh, Aiken, Chief uh, Political Correspondent for Global News. Let me just read you, before I talk to my my good friend and, and our guest and my contributor to this program, the former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Brian Peckford. Let me just read you a couple of lines from my editorial piece, which is at RoyGreenShow.com. And it's all about the Conservative Party stumbling over itself. The Conservative Party of Canada, under the stewardship of Andrew Scheer, appeared less focused than the proverbial drunken sailor. And having been a drunken sailor, I can personally testify this is so. Repeatedly, the Conservatives managed to mangle opportunities by ignoring the obvious and Scheer was almost completely derailed by something as simple to dispatch as the question about his citizenship duality. Canadians are fully aware their Prime Minister is not the most skilled at extemporaneous speaking, think cardboard plastic drinking bottles kind of stuff. Another missed opportunity. Look, I'm not jumping ahead to the Ides of March and playing Brutus to Scheer's Julius Caesar. Personally, Scheer seems like a nice guy. The Conservative Party is well aware that I'm small-c Conservative and was more than likely going to vote CPC. Yet when I quizzed him, I seldom had the sense Mr. Scheer was comfortable as leader of the party and poised to hand Trudeau nationally the same message Alberta and Saskatchewan delivered. Let's go to Brian Peckford, former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. Peckford42.wordpress.com is where you can read the premier's blogs. By the way, we'll take some phone calls from you in a few minutes' time and hear your thoughts on two issues. Mr. Scheer's continued stewardship of the federal party, and uh, your reaction to the job that Jason Kenney has done so far as Premier of Alberta. We'll take some calls in a few minutes. Premier Peckford, what is your sense about the correct way to proceed for the federal conservative party? Has Mr. Scheer done enough, in your view, to remain the leader of the party? Well, uh, first of all, let me say thank you again for having me on your program. It's such an interesting program, and I hope that those who are listening right now continue to listen, not not only if I'm on the program, but to the various subjects and guests that you have on. Thank you. Extremely enriching uh, program, in my view. Thank you. I appreciate that. Notwithstanding the fact that I'm in a conflict of interest uh, situation, given that you invite me on to your program. After saying that, I have your your editorial or your comment on Mr. Scheer and the Conservative leadership. being to the right of center and not a supporter of uh, Mr. Trudeau's party or of the NDP, nor of the Conservative Party, but being to the right uh, on the political spectrum, I'm as frustrated as you are and many other like-minded conservatives in what has happened over the last year or so as it relates to the Conservative Party of Canada and Mr. Scheer's leadership and, uh, what shall I say, uncertain policy direction. And so... I think we all can quite clearly um, come down on the side of, you know, this is not satisfactory. And uh, that's where I come down as well. And I'm very, very frustrated. As a matter of fact, more than a year ago, I wrote Mr. Scheer and I wrote the party. I've yet to receive a response. So that kind of thing even adds to the 
frustration. And just recently, Mr. Scheer announced um, a new deputy leader who's only been a conservative for a year or so. And I, once again, I think that was a very uh, unfortunate move. So, uh, like I say, I'm as frustrated as anybody. However, I do still appreciate going through this process in a logical fashion. I don't think we should start knee-jerking ourselves as conservatives into making quick decisions. Now, if the Conservative Party of Canada didn't have a leadership convention up in April where the leadership is going to come up, if there wasn't a review of what happened in the last election by John Baird, then I would be more inclined to go along with all of those who are asking for Scheer to resign now, today, get out. Uh, including those people who started that website, Conservative Victory, who are um, wanting him to stop now. So I do believe in doing this in a logical fashion. So I think that most of the people who are now asking for his resignation and who are upset like I am should support moving ahead for four months, campaigning towards the convention coming up for candidates that they think would make a better leader than Mr. Scheer. So as frustrated as I am, I do believe in doing it in a logical fashion and that if I was in the position of many of those who are in the party and are looking forward to a new leader, then there is a process in place by which they can do that. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if whether going through that process would be too much of an upheaval for the party and for people in the party and whether it would create the kind of disunity that you don't want. Does Andrew Scheer have a, he obviously doesn't believe so, but does he have a responsibility now to step aside and give an opportunity to someone else to pick up the pieces? Because we don't know how long this minority government of Justin Trudeau's is going to survive. Right. Probably a couple of years, but nobody knows for sure. And and Premier Peckford, when you, when, you, when you enter the contest, you enter the contest to win, not to finish second, even right. if you score more points than you did the last time you lost. It's it's still another loss, yes, and no, it doesn't. I, I agree, but, but but we must be democratic about it. I don't think by by sheer resigning and then somebody going in who's supported by the caucus or some of the caucus mm-hmm. or some of the elites. So that's the other thing that bothers me. I'm so non-elitist, uh, and and perhaps I have a uh, you know perhaps I have a fatal flaw that way. That most of the people who are speaking up are people who are really the elites of the party. I don't know what the president of the conservative. Uh, constituency association of Prince George is saying or of somebody in Atlantic Canada or wherever is saying about what's happening. So I I get a little bit um, uncomfortable when I hear just a small group of people who've been involved in the party, you know, part of the, what shall I say, the more elite part of the party um, advocating for this. I, I would rather, there's going to be upheaval anyway. I mean, if, if, if in fact, uh, Scheer resigned after our program, this program today, said, okay, I'll accept what everybody's saying, I'm getting out, and then somebody takes over, um, that's not done democratically. And, uh, well, let me, let, me, uh, Prima, let me ask you this. Uh, would it be possible, and I don't want to drag it out too far, because we're going to take some calls and see what our, what our callers think of this, and right. we'll hear from liberals as well, because... I think the Liberals have a decision to make. Do they want to go into another federal election led by Justin Trudeau, or is he too much of a, uh, a handicap? Does he bring too much negative baggage with him? Right. Uh, he won, but he didn't win convincingly. There's well, they he, lost he, their majority. He lost the popular vote. They lost. Well, yeah, and they and they there lost more, their majority. More voted for conservatives than voted for the Liberals in the last election. Yeah, and I said in my uh, editorial piece, I talked to a. A very uh, convinced and uh, and strong liberal supporter not long ago, like actually just days ago, and I asked him about Justin Trudeau going forward with Trudeau as the leader into the next federal election, and I didn't get a verbal answer. I got an eye roll. Right. The 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 one thing that we've got to keep in mind here is some fundamentals, and the, and the one fund the fundamentals that I think you and I would agree on is that conservatives by nature are more individualistic. Mm-hmm. and liberals by nature are more group. And that makes a big difference as, one, as that gets manifested through the parties. So the conservatives are more likely to do what they're doing now. 
coming out and saying, you know, what yeah. they're saying. Well, one thing, uh, I'm going to put you on hold. more, you know, they do it behind closed doors. Premier, I'm going to put you on hold in just a couple of seconds, but one option Andrew Shear would have would be to say now, if you were to make this decision, I'm going to stay the leader until the until April, yes. and I will continue to run the party until April, and then in April, I will decide, I've decided I'm going to step aside and give someone else the opportunity to lead the party into the next that, election. That, that, could, that would be perhaps a more reasonable way to, to approach the thing. On let that, me, I think I could agree. Premier, let me take a break. We will come back with Brian Peckford, the former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, who is a really valued contributor to this program. And we'll ask you whether you're conservative or liberal or NDP supporter, doesn't matter. Uh, you know what's going on within the leadership of the Conservative Party. Do you believe, 1-800-263-2428, by the way, is the number to call, 1-800-263-2428. Do you believe Andrew Scheer should stay on as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, or should he step aside given the performance of the Conservative Party in the last federal election just over a month ago? 1-800-263-2428. Email to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Uh, William sends this email. Good afternoon. I'd like to see Sheer leave. Listening to him on the debates, the re he repeated himself on his platform. He held back all his punches. Trudeau could have been taken down. Uh, the Paradise Papers is, uh, is brought up. And on uh, Twitter, at the Roy Green Show... Uh, Daniel uh, tweets, Roy Shear must resign. He's damaged goods and much like Joe Clark, a nice guy who can't be rehabilitated at the Roy Green Show on Twitter. We're back with Premier Brian Peckford. Premier, let's take a few phone calls and see what we're hearing from Canadians on this one. Sure, love to. Let's start with Catherine in Toronto. Catherine, thank you for the call. Go ahead, please. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Yes, I want to preface my answer. Uh, Good afternoon. I want to preface my answer by saying that uh, I remember after the SNC-Lavalin scandal and it was learned that Trudeau had indeed obstructed justice, Mr. Scheer was going after Trudeau. He wanted the RCMP to investigate Trudeau, and nothing has come of it. Nothing was mentioned during the debates. Uh, just Mr. Scheer was just like a jellyfish. He's a nice man, a nice family man. But he's going to ruin the party. He has to go now. So okay, that, Catherine. Uh, Thank you for the call. I appreciate the comment. Uh, I thought he did pretty well in the actually the English debate. I thought Andrew, that was his best moment during the election campaign, Premier Peckford. Yeah, well, I, I agree. He, he did fairly well. But I think the lady has a really good point. And I think this is what's so frustrating for so many Canadians. I mean, there were all kinds of uh, opportunities there where he really should have carried the ball as it related yes. to the whole question of yes. SNC-Lavalin. Yes. You know, the shutting down of the parliamentary committee, they never made as big a deal out of that as they should have. Exactly. Um, and, and so on. So there are so many uh, issues. My, my problem was, uh, as I said at the outset, is ensuring that it's done in an appropriate and democratic and logical but don't you way. think don't you think it has to be done in a way that the people of Canada will say yeah this works for me let's go to Clark in uh, in Didsbury Alberta hi Clark uh, gentlemen yes sir uh, go ahead please I think Shear should actually stick around I think he just needs an injection maybe voice lessons from James Earl Jones <laughs> let's get back to building the country as for mr. Kenny I think he wants mr. Shear's job he's been overreaching in the last three bills he's introduced uh, Bill 207, Bill 22, Bill 20, uh, all we've done is basically handed Justin Trudeau the next election, saying, look what conservatives do. Look how religious they've gotten, how socially conservative and small they have become. And look, just look at Mr. Kenny. Uh, Thank you, Clark. Appreciate your call. I have to move along fairly quickly. Premier, comment? Yes, uh, on that, uh, I, I think we have to wait on Mr. Kenny. I, I think it's a bit too early to start judging him. I'm not familiar with the, the, the new bills. I haven't read them, so uh, I'm, I couldn't really comment that. But I think some more time has to go, go with Mr. Kennedy uh, in control to uh, objectively assess uh, how he's doing and what, and what direction he's yeah, taking. What, what, I, what I found interesting was the story that uh, at the uh, UCP AGM, there was, uh, and you can find the story on globalnews.ca, there was a question about whether Alberta should be more autonomous, and the support for that 
was apparently pretty raucous and pretty straightforward. There was no doubt about the level of support. Rick is in uh, Cold Lake, Alberta. Rick, uh, thanks Thank for you. the call. What do you say about, first of all, Andrew Shear? Should he stay? Should he go? You should pull a fast one and stay till April. That'll give everybody time to pick a new champion, if you like, because Trudeau is going to pull another boner, and maybe Shear can get in there with a no-confidence vote. Okay, appreciate the call. What about? Do you think there's going to be... Uh, I should ask you this because let me phrase it to you this way: You're the political uh, expert. You're the you're the you're the the proven winner. And I still remember you saying in uh, I think it was the 1980s you did polling where, in one by-election, I think it was in one riding, you knew within 60 votes how the thing was going to turn out. And you look at the uh, the, the kind of um, mechanisms that are available now to pollsters. Do you have a sense, does your gut tell you that this this minority government is going to survive for 24 months, or could it be shorter? Because that would also have a bearing on what the conservatives do as far as leader is concerned. Yeah, my, my sense of it right now is that for the next year, uh, it's it's quite likely to, uh, to uh, stand. It's, it's quite likely to continue for a year. I think after a year, and we see where the NDP go with the Liberals, uh, then it's very hard to sort of predict beyond that. But I'd say for the next year, uh, the, the, the minority government is relatively safe. But after that, uh, depending on how the NDP and the Liberals marry together or whoever marries with them to initiate uh, the, their legislation and their own speech and their budget, then I think we would, that needs to be revisited. But for the next year, I suspect that they're okay. That would be my political gut on the situation right now. Premier, what do you think is going on inside the Federal Conservative Party? Do you think that they are moving levers, pulling switches, making calls, sending emails, calling in favors with the intention of replacing Andrew Scheer as leader? Yeah, I suspect there is. And, and like I say, my experience both personally in, in trying to contact him and, and in his policy initiatives and his overall, it comes down to leadership and policy. And, and you know, usually um, the leadership comes first and then the policy okay. follows. And, and on both counts, I think uh, that Mr. Scheer has failed. The question now becomes, how do you do it in a democratic right. and, and reasonable fashion? Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I do. I am sort of inclined towards your view that he would announce that he will resign at the okay. convention, stay on for now, Premier, and then allow a leadership convention to occur. All, but always, no doubt, within the party I, right I now, got, I've got to, I have to go. I have to go, Premier. Thank you so much for the time. Oh, it was great talking to you. Thank you. Okay, thank Pre you too. Premier Brian Preckford on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Um, I became aware this past week of a book titled Black Cop, My 36 Years in Police Work and My Career-Ending Experiences with Official Racism. Calvin Lawrence is a former Halifax police officer, former RCMP officer, and he writes about the systemic and official racism he experienced throughout his career. Uh, he brought his case before the Canadian Human Rights Commission, which resulted in a confidential settlement. Now, I want to tell you this. I don't have the opportunity to read many books. I'm just so busy putting together components of this program. I've read the beginnings of Mr. Lawrence's book, and I'm going to read it all. It really captured my attention. Calvin Lawrence joins us on The Roy Green Show. Calvin, thank you for the time. And I've done a lot of research on you and, and things you've, other things you've written, and I've read uh, the, the epilogue to your book uh, completely, so I, have, I think I have relevant questions for you. I know I do. And thank you for taking the time, and, and how are you? Hi, thank you. Let me start with this. News this week that the Halifax police are formally apologizing to the city's black community for street checks and racial profiling. You were born and raised in Halifax. What, is this, what does this story speak to to you? Well, if you know the history of, of, of Halifax and Nova Scotia, you know that there's always been uh, racial conflict in a lot of areas, uh, the nine areas of people activity I talk about economics, education, entertainment, labor law, politics, religion, sex, and war. We're talking about law. Um, there has been a lot of uh, uh, conflict. Uh, I was an Halifax City police officer. The Black Panthers came in 1968. And uh, yes, there is an apology, but uh, an apology without, uh, without change is, is just manipulation. And I believe that the chief is sincere, but the chief, chiefs, uh, uh, commissioners, chief superintendents, higher ranked people, 
are more in a political role than they are in a actual street uh, policing role. So uh, he can apologize, but until there's a change, a, a substantial change in the way that policing is, is, is done, there will always be suspicion. Now, I said I hadn't read your whole book. I've read parts of it, and uh, I find this really interesting. I want to ask you about this. Based on the Halifax experience, then we'll talk to you about your personal experience, but this is part of your personal experience. You talk in the book about racial tailoring and racial showcasing within Canadian police. What's that about? Well, um, back back in in, in 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 past years, you it was fairly blatant racist, racial racial behavior, but um, racial tailoring generally is that restricting your opportunities. Uh, and minimizing your accomplishments, racial tailoring. And racial showcasing, of course, is when people say the first, the only, where they, they talk about the first black chief of Toronto, the first black chief of Ottawa. Uh, that's racial showcasing. And uh, I think that uh, both are lead us to believe that uh, there are things happening that are not happening. Window dressing. Window dressing, you got it. Window dressing, because tell me what a white chief, unless you're working in a cultural diverse society where you're, for example, if there were only Chinese and you had a Chinese police chief, well, there's a cultural divide. But in a in a in a, in most cities, uh, I I don't feel that it is about the color of the person. A white chief, a black chief, a woman chief. The bottom line is, can they bridge the gap between these communities, these marginalized communities, and the police? Okay, now let me go into your life a little bit here. You worked as a summer student with the Halifax Police, right? Uh, I started off uh, as a summer student and in then, 68. And in 1969, you became yes. a police officer in Halifax. Let me ask you That's this. Right. What were your expectations as you entered the profession. Why, and what was the first incident that made you question whether you were going to be treated as an equal with white officers? Well, my expectations were, were of any person who's applying for a, 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 a job or a, or a profession. Uh, you go by, the, the you feel you have an opportunity like everyone else. And if you compete, and do your work well, then you have that a realistic opportunity that you can move through the ranks and possibly specialize. Uh, that kind of came to a, a bit of a question when uh, I walked in and there were uh, there were pictures on uh, posted uh, with mugshots of black uh, people charged with crimes, and uh, there was uh, words written under them such as nigger and Calvin Lawrence and spook and coon. And, of course, these were done by police officers, and they were done anonymously. So uh, you're wondering, well, why is this happening? And when, what was directed your way uh, specifically? And, and you, were, you were attacked. And I, well, I don't know if you were attacked physically. I mean, you were a former Canadian uh, heavyweight amateur boxing champion, so that might not be a good idea to attack you. Physically, but 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 emotionally and otherwise, what happened to you as a black police officer? What happened to you that that really was racially motivated from your fellow officers and also systemically? Well, I I've, I got along uh, with most people that I work with as a constable. Uh, I don't think they would want to attack me, <laughs> but. Uh, um, where you see the systemic issues is where you're you're racially uh, um, showcased, uh, or where you're uh, restricted in certain areas of transfers, promotions, um, passed over for certain courses. And throughout my career, I can give you you know the posters uh, been everywhere, and they're they're in the book. You can see them in the book. There, there's a mm -hmm. lot of racist racist posters that were put up and uh, or I had notes left in my basket so I started collecting them and I have a small little pile and some I didn't even keep but throughout my career whether I was in uh, 
Halifax City Police or the RCMP, these these posters turned up. You know, it was almost as if, well, okay, I'm here now. Where's the where's the 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 poster? So there's no question this was all aimed at and directed at you because you're black. Well, yeah, yeah, it, it was it was a form of uh, form of uh, you know, stay in your place, intimidation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And having said that, that does not take away from the racial bantering that goes on. Uh, that is not what I would consider uh, a slight against me. I mean, if you if you watch the movie uh, uh, City on the Hill and Crave TV, there you'll see it. Ha- it doesn't happen as much for me as it did in the program in a one hour. But there is this what what you would call uh, no pun intended black humor. But uh, even everybody knows the difference between being being kicked and being tripped over. Mm-hmm. When it came to, and you mentioned this a minute ago, when it came to promotions or opportunities to move your career forward, to advance your career within the police, and you were started in Halifax, you were with the RCMP. I want to ask you about that as well, because as a, uh, a part of your book where you're a chapter about uh, major betrayals of RCMP core values. But when it came to you pursuing advancement opportunities, what would happen to derail that? What was said? What, what, what took place? Well, How did they justify not letting it go ahead? They, it, it, it is not a just... Halifax City Police, from 1969 to 1978, I was Halifax City Police Officer. Right. Uh, I was hired basically because uh, me and a number of other people were hired in a short period of time, within three, four years. Uh, and uh, this was basically because the Black Panther Party had come to Halifax. That's and, why, that's why uh, they hired you? That's why they hired all of us, basically, because before that, it was they didn't really uh, look to recruit uh, black police officers. And uh, there's, some, there's a post in my book there where, where somebody had told me that a uh, uh, high officer told me that, you know, black people would come in and apply and they'd take his application. And then when he went out the door, they'd laugh and throw it in a basket. However, uh, it didn't take me long to figure that out. And that's one of the reasons I left. And uh, the first black police officer was hired in Halifax City Police in, 19, in 1967. And the first promotion was not until 1995 of a one black person. That's the only one. You, you have no doubt in your mind. I have to take a break here in a second. But you have no doubt at all. There's no doubt in your mind that because you're black, because uh, you're Calvin Lawrence and, and not Roy Green, I'm white. Uh, you you didn't get you didn't get the opportunity. If Roy Green had shown up and 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 made an application to move forward in his policing career, and Calvin Lawrence had been standing beside Roy Green doing the same thing, Roy Green would have got the gig, right? Well, I can't say that you would have got it. But I had a better, I had a better chance. You wouldn't, have got, you wouldn't have been turned down because of your race. Okay, I had a better chance of getting it. Yeah, you had a, at that time. Yes, you had a better chance, and. Uh, there was still more opportunities for you once you got in than was for me. Okay, can you hold on a minute? Certainly. We'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk to Calvin Lawrence about his time in the RCMP. What about your your chapter? I had a question there, Calvin, and it just disappeared. I don't know if that happens to you, but oh yeah, more more than. <laughs> Think something appears in my brain, and I think, this is good. And then I go to retrieve it five seconds later, and it's gone. Uh, your chapter about major betrayals of RCMP core values, what was your life like? What was your time like within the RCMP? Because that should be different to the Halifax cops, no? Well, basically, I've had, I've had rural policing, which is, which is I was in a 13-person detachment. Right. Uh, and I've had federal policing. Uh, which was in uh, Toronto and uh, Ottawa, and you had major so, assignments like guarding prime ministers. Yeah, I, I, that, I, I took uh, that as my uh, my specialty. I mean, it takes you about five years to figure out what kind of cop you want to be, what your style is, and then if you want to specialize. And I, I specialized in uh, protective policing, so I was in charge, for example, of the bodyguard team. President Clinton at the economic summit in Halifax plus his entourage and I planned it and I lectured to the members so that was kind of where I I, I wanted to put my hang my hat right um, so so if somebody says well look at Calvin Lawrence is talking about things that he did and it sounds like a pretty decent career that he had I mean he had some incidents but it's not what was it where did it go off the rails for you 
Well, with with as far as being black in the RCMP is concerned. Well, it it somebody leaves a note in your basket or somebody makes a remark. I can I can deal with that. That's that's nothing. I grew up in Halifax. I mean, that's uh, uh, where it starts to go off the rails is where you start uh, uh, applying for different sections. Apply, uh, you part you start uh, applying for different courses, uh, transfers, and. Uh, you find that uh, you're marginalized to a degree. Uh, it, you find that, for example, uh, when I joined the RCMP, uh, it was noted in my assessment that I did a lot uh, to to enhance the relationship between the black community and the police. And then I was sent to, to Newfoundland. Now, I didn't mind that. I mean, I went to Newfoundland. I, I took it. But uh, once there were uh, issues... Uh, and racial conflict between the communities of Preston and, and, and the RCMP that I was sought after to be sent back to, to, to those communities. And uh, that's what you call racial showcasing. So, so it all, there always was a, a reason why I couldn't do something rather than to say that you, you're shown, you've shown uh, your abilities here, so we're going to, to, to improve that yeah. uh, by giving you a promotion. And that manifested itself for the first time in, in the prime minister's protection detail where they did everything they could to keep me from being promoted. And then in the book, it, it, it says that I was appointed uh, uh, corporal because of uh, uh, by the commissioner. Uh, and so um, that gives you some idea of, of, of I had to fight for things. I, 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 I'd learn, I'd study, I'd work, and rather than get it, I would have to fight for it. A lot of talk about white supremacists, and we've just finished a week um, engulfed by the behavior of the now former head coach of the Calgary Flames of the NHL after Akeem Alou, a black former player for Bill Peters, tweeted Peters used the N-word on him. Um, I'm guessing that didn't shock you. Uh, is society more or less racist or intolerant? Than when you were, and we have about a minute and a half, more or less. Oh my God, a minute and a half. I'd have to, I'd have to go on this for about an hour. But l- let me just say that I don't use the term white supremacist because um, it's as if it's a standalone process. I use the term white supremacist behavior. And basically, in society, there are people who are white. They're just white. They go to work every day. They do their work. They do whatever. Then there are people who classify as, as who practice white supremacist behavior. And that is to maintain dominance and control over people that are classified as non-white. And that's the big difference. And the only difference, how do you tell the difference and what's the difference, is deception. Deception. If you, and everybody is concentrating on what this gentleman said. But nobody concentrate on how they made that black person feel. He has to now swing the pick. And instead of having the mind of a prospector, he has the mind of a convict. In other words, he's doing the job because he's, he has to, but this will play on you for the rest of your life. Nobody ever looks at the pain that this causes the person, the emotional pain, if that makes sense. It does. I'm going to squeeze in one more, one more question for you. Would, sure. would, would you advise a young black man to be, become a police officer in 2020? We're only a few weeks away from that. Yes, I would, uh, because I've mentioned those nine major areas that we work on a base on a, on a daily basis and racist behavior is in every one of those unless you want to stay home and watch the soap operas uh you're going to be subject to it but however uh know the game going in that's all i'm saying know the pitfalls going in because you will be black people will be racially tailored and or racially showcased calvin lawrence thank you very much for joining us uh black cop my 36 years in police work and by career-ending experiences with official racism. I've already told you that we'll be calling you for uh, thoughts and opinions and points of view on uh, on issues on this program, and you've kindly agreed to do that. So thanks for the time today, Calvin. All the best to you. Thank you very much for having me. I can't walk. I, I, I'm essentially useless. I just, I'm unable to ambulate. If I'm able to get around it, I have to drag my lower body around the house because my spine is uh, that painful. It won't hold my legs up. Um, And I just sit around and cry. I mean, I am not able to uh, be useful to anybody, at least of all my children. So there's a a guest, a previous guest on this program, who's uh, dealing with 
chronic pain, chronic agony, and is unable to get the pain medications that uh, she has been prescribed previously because doctors, and they've told me this off the air confidentially, are afraid of losing their licenses. They, they won't tell me, they won't go in there and tell us that because they say regulators are telling them, medical regulators are telling them, um, stop prescribing opioids. And that has to do with the guidelines for opioid medication uh, in this country, and they're based on the Centers for Disease Control guidelines from the United States, and the CDC has already issued um, statements saying, we didn't intend for patients to be cut off from their medications. We didn't intend that. We didn't want long-standing patients to be cut off. We don't want the kinds of things happening that are happening. And Human Rights Watch has uh, commented on it as well, and human rights of pain patients are being uh, violated. And we've talked about it on this program a, a, a fair bit because of what's going on. And we've had conversations uh, with, well, we talked to the, uh, the author of this particular tweet, so sad, this week, I've been in such severe pain, I went looking for heroin. I never imagined myself, a retired nurse, ever considering injecting anything. I'm that desperate. My other choice was suicide. I saw a new PM doctor this week, pain medication doctor this week, and another futile attempt to secure legal meds. Last weekend, I read you an email that I received from someone in this country, a mother who also wrote, what am I going to tell my children? What will they think if their mother commits suicide because of the agony that she's in? She can't get the pain meds either. Three weeks ago, we spoke with Scott and Chrissy in the early 60s. Scott, same thing, had, and he was on the air with us telling us he's had opioid-based pain medication for 30 years, and it was reduced by 80%, and he attempted suicide a few weeks ago, and it was his wife who discovered him and stopped him. Why is this going on? Why is this allowed to go on? The, uh, the chronic pain patient's denial of opioid pain medication issue may now, and I'm going to get some details on this, may be creating an entirely new group of victims. Is the DEA in the United States, is their gutting of opioid production disrupting pain control for sick and injured animals? Are veterinarians in the United States scrambling to find available means for analgesics? Are family pets being forced to suffer? I want to talk about that with one of my guests. Also, the increased numbers of suicide threats that uh, my other guest has been hearing, or they've probably both been hearing it, and patients who were scheduled to have surgeries in hospitals are not going forward with their surgeries because they haven't been able to verify that the hospital will provide them with a pain medication that they require after the surgeries. It goes on and on and on. Meanwhile, in the city of Vancouver, the uh, effort is being made to come up with $6 million to provide non-chronic pain, drug-addicted people with free heroin. The chronic pain patient is left to struggle and suffer, and we have a prime minister who says, well, it's low-grade and annoying. That's Justin Trudeau's interpretation of what chronic pain is. Joining me on the program, Richard Lawhern, Ph.D., chronic pain patient, national advocate for 23 years in the United States, co-founder of the Alliance for the Treatment of Intractable Pain, and Mark Rose, medical writer and author of a, 200, a 2018 paper challenging the premise of the CDC opioid prescribing guideline, and it was Mr. Rose, and an email that I saw from him that got me uh, really interested in the issue of pain control for animals. Uh, Richard, good to have you back on the show. Yes, How are I'm you, sir? You. Yes, I'm with you. And Mark, welcome to the program. First time we've talked. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Great to be here. Let me uh, let me start with you right away, Mark, and let's get uh, Richard. We're going to get to humans in a second, but I wanted to. I want I want to get some information here on an email that you sent to Richard, and uh, which I saw as well. And uh, and and you point out um, that it, that animals um, may be or are not receiving the the pain treatment they require because. Opioid meds are, are not available and veterinarians can't get the stuff. Is that true? 
Um, according to that paper, which was published, um, I believe, about nine months ago, there were already uh, widespread shortages for the treatment of acute pain in animals uh, you know, across veterinary practices in the country, and the country being the U.S., and it, was, it astonished me to understand that the ripple effect of the DEA's gutting of you know, what they call it quotas, um, and, and they're slashing back the quotas, and the, the, the extent of the impact into veterinary care is just astonishing. And say nothing about you know the plight of, of people. Right. Well, I'm looking at the at this at this paper um, that you sent through to Richard, and I'm looking. I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen veterinarians, or thirteen veterinarians and uh, one PhD, who participated in this uh, in in this creating this white paper, and. Uh, it says the following white paper is the result of a special session of the Fifth International Veterinary Pain Short Course on Pain, Pain Mechanisms, and Novel Therapies in Veterinary Medicine. And it goes on to talk about the shortages of, uh, of pain meds for pets or for animals. Uh-huh. So that's, that's a, that's, that is a huge issue. And that's going to reach into people's homes. And, and guys, I, I, I hate to say this, but I think it's true. I think many people will react more to this if this is in fact going on. More people may react to this than to the concerns about humans not getting their uh, their pain meds. Richard, what do you say? I completely agree. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. For one, I would add to something. Uh, I would add something to Mark's observations, if I might. Uh, this yeah. shortage on production is also compounded by letters that have been generated to veterinarians from um, both pharmacies and insurance companies and uh, in a, at least one case that I'm aware of, a state medical board, that discouraged the use of opioids in animals under the assumption that some numbers of people will be diverting those opioids to non-medical mm-hmm. human use. Now, this is just it's outright craziness. Well, I can tell you, my little my little dog uh, who died a few months ago, a Yorkie, Yorkshire Terrier, who was um, eight pounds, he had a very virulent uh, skin cancer, and the veterinarian gave me tiny, 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 tiny little pills, tiny little well, little dog, right? And I believe those pills included an opiate base, and they helped the dog. I saw him without that pain medication for two days. And I would not want to see that a third day. Yeah, I, I would quite agree. Now, how widely this is happening is very hard to nail down from the sta- from one standpoint, and that is that uh, there is no single agency in the U.S. That, at least that I'm aware of, and Mark may be able to reinforce this. There's no single agency in the U.S. that I'm aware of that is charged with verifying the output, the outcomes or assessing the impact of the shortages that are occurring. What we're seeing is multiple reports from individual practitioners. But being able to generalize from that is really, really very tough. Okay, but you're seeing so, reports from veterinarians that they can't get their uh, the supplies of analgesics that they require to look after properly their, their, their own patients, their animal patients, for their pain. This is how far right. it's gone. That's right. May I introduce another thought that's very closely related? Sure. I have a posting from Facebook. It's open on my page, and I'll read it to you. It's very brief. My dad is currently in the hospital for stage 4 lung, brain, and bone cancer. He's in pain. He says it's an 8 out of 10. This is what they're giving him. I just questioned them, and they said they'll see what they can do. How is this even acceptable? And she adds to this a picture of the... Uh, prescription uh, forms from the hospital that indicates this man with stage 4 cancer is being treated with 1,000 milligrams of Tylenol every eight hours. 
Now, this is just one of many reports that I am seeing in both social media and in comment threads to articles I've published. This is widespread in the U.S., and it has gone so far that it is affecting patients in hospice. We know that patients in hospice are being denied opioids, even when they're terminal. So this is a widespread issue. You see it in Canada in, in we do, yes. with some variations, but you see it in Canada just as we do in the U.S. Yeah. It is not going too far to say that the, the medical, the overreaction of medical regulation authorities is so severe that it is madness. It is just people tuning out and saying, no, 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 I won't prescribe because it might put my license at risk. And if it hurts the patient, too freaking bad. Well, doctors have said that to me, not in those words, but doctors have, uh, and, and not in the last couple of weeks, but doctors have said to me when I've asked them specifically about prescribing opioid-based pain medication to people who really require it, um, no, I can't do that because it could cost me my medical license, and I work really hard to get that, and it's my future. I cannot sacrifice my future and lose my license. So. And then I hear the same, and I have every empathy for these doctors, by the way. They so are I. really in a jam. So They're do I. But, you know, you know, Richard uh, Richard and Mark, doctors could en masse as a group stand up and say, we're not going to continue uh, with this any longer. We're going, to stand, we're going to stand with our patients, and we're going to declare this is going on. That's an option. In fact, that's happening, and I can give you another example. Exactly. Let me get you to hold on for a second, because I have to take a break. We'll come back, and we'll talk more. Back to Richard Lawhern, uh, chronic pain uh, patient national advocate in the United States, co-founder of the Alliance for the Treatment of Intractable Pain, and Mark Rose, a medical writer and author. Um, for, let me do before I do anything else, Richard. Where can my listeners find you on uh, social media? Where? There's an easy place to uh, search. If you'll enter a Google search on the term "the Lawhern Files," L-A-W-H-E-R-N. That'll take you to an archive of my published work. And on Facebook, I'm pretty easy to get to. It's facebook.red.lawhern. Okay. And my page, my page is public. It's very easy to get, to get uh, taken on as one of my Facebook friends. What about you, Mark? Um, well, my social media presence has been... Um, curtailed because of other you know, other obligations and time constraints and whatnot. And okay. okay. I, so I'm, I'm, I need to rectify this, in fact. Um, okay, we can cover, can we get, can cover I that. I can get back to you with that. Now, we can cover that another time. So, uh, yeah. Richard, Richard, what were you going to say But before we took the break? Because we're now talking about what's happening to pain patients. You're talking about the, the realities in the United States. I've carried the stories in, the, in, in Canada. They are so uh, remarkably similar. They're identical, actually. What were you going to say before the break? Well, let's see. <laughs> let's go a lot, a lot of distance. Basically, what I would reinforce what I just uh, the observation I just made to begin with. And that is that we, we are seeing widespread indications of uh, p- patients and doctors deferring surgery that is needed uh, because anesthesia uh, is not fully available or because the hospital has uh, basically put in place policies that deny opioid treatment. There's one excellent study that's recently out by a very reputable journal that indicates that in the state of Wisconsin, a group of people did telephone calls to all of the general practice um, clinics in the state of Wisconsin to find out whether they were still taking new patients, and if so, if they were taking patients for opioid treatment. And over 40% of them said that as a matter of policy, they would not take on new patients for the treatment of pain using opioids. Wow. Just, do, just, 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 that, to, just do this for us, please. Say, tell us again about that cancer patient you were mentioning. Well, what's happening to that man? Remind us. Well, what's happening to that individual, they are basically um, at stage four, which is generally regarded as terminal. Right. And the uh, information that was put forward to me indicates that the... Um, 
the hospital where this individual is being treated has put him on a regimen of 1,000 milligrams of Tylenol every eight hours for pain. And that's it. And in stage four brain and bone cancer, I assure you, this individual is not getting much help. No, and I want to say this before we have to leave this segment. I just retweeted the link to this. 40-year-old single mom with terminal stage four metastatic breast cancer refused her pain medication and recorded this video. I added to that, it's okay if you cry. The next person mistreated this way may be someone you love uses F-word, but why wouldn't she? Richard Lawhern, Mark, Mark Rose, thank you guys. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. We'll talk Anytime. again. Such a significantly, I mean, a massively important issue, and, uh, and it's not getting anywhere near the attention that it deserves, that it requires. And the next person who is in such distress could be someone you love or... It could be you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.